we're going to be reading through Acts chapter 19, and we're going to be reading from verses 8 through to the end. So starting from verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and the diseases left them, and their evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom there was the spirit was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that, fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, Many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them, and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of our great god, of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed of her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were so enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theatre, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theatre. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defence to the crowd. But when they recognised that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. 
And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is a temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For, if you, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Uh, now, the main thing I'd like to show you today is that preaching the gospel will inevitably cut at the heart of people's very livelihoods. Or another way to say that is that the gospel will challenge the idols in our personal lives and our culture. The gospel will push deep into the thing that is most important in people's lives. And people will either repent or riot. Uh, in Acts 19, we see two crowds. Two crowds and two very different responses. Crowd number one, their response, this massive group of people come together and they repent wholeheartedly in this radical act of burning all their magic books, the very things that they make their living with. Uh, you compare that to crowd number two. Their response is to riot in the streets when their false god is called out. Two crowds, two very different responses. Uh, and today, I actually stand preaching before a crowd. You are that crowd. You're going to hear God's word today, and you've got to have a response. What will your response be? Here's my questions to you today as a crowd. Number one, will you be a crowd of people that repents or riots when your idols are challenged? And question number two, will you preach a gospel that causes people to repent or riot when their idols are challenged? I'm going to be real bold here. I'm going to ask big things from God, that whole groups of people are going to make that gut-wrenching decision to turn away from that thing that they actually hold most dear in their life and turn to God. If you want to see that in the people around you today, if you want to see that in yourself, in the culture around you, uh, pray along with me. Let's, let's ask God of this. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, your word is so good and instructs us in many ways. Teach us from it today. Cause people to turn away from their false gods and turn to you. Grow us right here into this blazing fire of people that are repenting together. And grow us into a people who are unashamedly uh, willing to share the gospel to those who are currently rebelling against you. Amen. Uh, now let's get started. A bit of context to where we are in the book of Acts. Uh, the Apostle Paul uh, is at the start of his third and final missionary journey. And he's bringing the gospel to the mega city of Ephesus. And boy, does it shake things up. Uh, by the way, this is the same Ephesus that uh, we see the book of Ephesians on uh, in, later in the Bible. 
Let's have a look at what happens when the gospel comes to the culture of Ephesus. I don't want to start pretty fast because I I think the emphasis is what happens later on, on the response of the crowd. Uh, But let's look at verse 8. Have you got your Bibles open? Uh, Acts chapter 19, we'll we'll go from verse 8. We'll start there. Uh, There we read that Paul, as per his usual pattern, enters the synagogue where the Jewish people are, and for three months he's speaking boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Uh, But in verse 9, people are stubborn and abusive, so he leaves, he moves away to the hall of Tyrannus, which is like the local city hall or university, where for the next two years, he's flat out telling people about Jesus. Uh, So much so that in verse 10, all, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And Asia here, uh, it's not Asia that we know, it, it's, it's Asia Minor, so like the, the region of Turkey and the surrounding areas. But nevertheless, that is no small feat. He stays in one city, uh, and through Paul preaching at Ephesus, the gospel has gone out to the whole region. People would come into Ephesus, they would hear Paul preaching, and then they would take it back to their hometowns. That's how we get stories like uh, Epaphras taking the gospel back to his hometown of Colossae. That's where we get the book of uh, Colossians from, where this group from Colossae all become Christians together. Now, as the Bible, uh, as, as the gospel is being preached by Paul, in verses 11 and 12, God is confirming the gospel message with extraordinary miracles. Even the sweaty, snotty, grime-stained, handkerchiefs and aprons that had even touched Paul the tent maker's skin were carried off to the sick uh, and were carried off to drive off evil spirits. However, from verse 13, there's this group of people that want to take advantage of that. They're the seven sons of a Jewish high priest called Sceva. Seven sons of Sceva. And... uh, (coughs) I hope you'll appreciate that I've more appropriately uh, renamed them to the, the silly sons of Sceva, uh, because they, they see the miracles that Jesus is doing through Paul, and in their greed, they want to make that part of their family exorcism business. They want to make some quick cash by tapping into the so-called Jesus power that drives out evil spirits. And they're saying, Come out, evil spirits, by the, ne- by, by, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. All is going well for them until one day in verse 13, they get an unexpected reply. An evil spirit answers them and says, Who are you? Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Uh, and then from, from then on, it's game over. Verse 16, the guy with the evil spirit jumps on them, beats all seven of them up, strips them of all their clothes so that they run down the street naked and bleeding. The silly sons of Sceva are publicly shamed and humiliated, and it's really rather comical. You know, at the same time, it's this this moment of sober clarity for everyone in Ephesus, that this Jesus guy is powerful and he's not to be messed with. Uh, now, the elephant in the room is to think, uh, what are we supposed to do with all these miracles and evil spirits in the current day? 
I'm just going to skip over it. <laughs> None of the staff are here to... Oh, actually, Steve's here. I thought he was on the lead. I thought he was away, actually. But uh, I'm just going to skip over it, Steve. <laughs> uh, more seriously, though, I think the emphasis of this passage isn't on the miracles and spirits. Rather, it's on the response that we see from the crowd. And I'm going to argue that the crowd isn't so much responding to the miracles so much as they're responding to the preaching that Paul was doing. So what's the preaching that Paul was doing? Uh, We're going to jump down to verse 25, where Demetrius the silversmith gives us his synopsis of the kind of preaching Paul was doing in Ephesus. Demetrius says, Men, you know that from this idol-making business, we have our wealth. And you see that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, that this Paul has turned away a great many people from idols, saying gods made by hands are not gods at all. Uh, Also, thanks to Evan for a fantastic rendition of Demetrius and his rallying speech. Uh, It's the same one there. Uh, If you've been distracted for the past couple of minutes, here's a summary. Paul is preaching the gospel, and as he does that, he challenges the idols in people's lives. And there's this event that happens that makes them all realize that their old way of living is silly. And now we get to the meat. We get to the response of crowd number one. It's point 2C in your bulletins. They respond with communal repentance. Uh, Repentance is a bit of a Christian word, but basically what it means is to realize that the way that you've been living is wrong, and and you want to turn to follow God. Let's have a look at this incredible picture of communal repentance here from verse 18. It's going to come up on the screen. This is what they did. Also, many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together. They burned them in the sight of all. They counted the value of the books and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Uh, Two things I want us to get from this. Number one, that this repentance is costly. Number two, that this repentance is communal. Costly and communal. Number one, this repentance is costly. These people set fire to their magic books worth 50,000 pieces of silver. The modern-day equivalent That's like burning $5 million, $5 million, all up in smoke. That's an incredibly remarkable picture. I can't even fathom that happening. It's it's much more than that. It's, It's not just $5 million. These books are what they earn their living by. It's how they put their food on the table. And this, was a, this is a core part of their lives. It's their career and their livelihoods that they're burning away. Can you, can you feel the price of this fire? Uh, brothers and sisters, uh, repentance is going to hurt. It's costly. I'm going to stop for a moment and ask, Is there something right now in your life that is currently stopping you back from coming to God fully? Is there something right now in your life that's stopping you from coming to God fully?
I wouldn't be surprised if there is. Is there something else that's at the center of your life? Um, I've, I asked a bunch of friends last night, what, what's the most important thing in your life right now? Without skipping a beat, one of them said, money, of course, and human connections, rel- friendships, and relationships. Another said, bettering myself, being the best version of myself that I can be. Others said, comfort and entertainment. Others, another said, climbing the, the, the ladder at work and that next promotion. Uh, others said, my family and my children. Others said, fitness and my body image. These are all good things. When they become ultimate things, they'll crush you. They can't bear the title of being the most important thing in your life. They can't bear being God in your life. You've got to remember this. If you live for your career, you'll work, you'll work, and you'll work, and it will never be enough. There's always going to be a a richer person you're going to compare yourself to, another person with a better job than you have. If you live for your health and your fitness and well-being, one day you're going to get old and ugly. You'll compare yourself to people younger than you. (laughs) No. (laughs) It's true. You're going to get ugly one day. (laughs) You're going to get old and ugly, and you're going to compare yourself to someone who's younger and more pretty and better looking than you. And you'll hate the aging process. The, these things in your life that you think are important, they can't bear the weight of being God in your life. If Jesus is your God, that means that the thing that you once thought was your livelihood, the thing that you once had as the most important thing in your life, can't be at the center of your life anymore. Which, of course, means things are going to have to change. And the reason why it's costly and why repentance is going to hurt is because that, that thing that you think is so important, it's, it's got this hold on your life. Your heart, your thoughts, your routines, your habits, your friends, everything is wrapped up in this false God that you think is central to your life. Uh, brothers and sisters, can I ask, what is that thing in your life that you're still clinging to as the most important thing? What is that thing that you're still holding on to in your life that is stopping you from having a full and true relationship with God because you love that thing so much? If you're not a Christian and here with us today, what is that aspect of your um, life that you love so much and you think is most important? and stopping you from having a relationship with God. Uh, If you're a new Christian, what is that aspect of your old life that you're still clinging on to and still hanging on to? Uh, If you've been a Christian for a long time, don't think you're excluded from this. In this passage, the people that are repenting here are people who are Christians and have realized that there's something in their life that they need to get rid of. 
What's that thing for you? What's that thing that you need to get rid of and repent of? Actually have something in your mind. I'm going to give you some time to think. Maybe today is a day that you get rid of it. Why don't you do that today? I, I can't think of a better time to do it. Confess that thing. Get rid of it. Burn it. Throw it on the fire. And turn to God. Do what you need to do today to start to deal with it. Yes, it's going to hurt. It's going to cost you. But I can assure you, assure you it's a million times worth the price. If that's you right now, I'm going to do something a little unconventional. I'm going to, we're going to pray in the middle of the service. Um, if you want to confess those things before God, now's a chance to do that. And I'll continue with the sermon. Let's pray. Uh, most merciful God, I confess that I have sinned against you. I have not loved you with my whole heart, and instead I love the things of this world. Lord, please change me. Help me to turn away from these things that have this hold on me and turn to you. Burn away the things that keep me from being in a relationship with you. Amen. And now if you, you prayed along with that, do you know what's going to make that, that fire that started in you into a blazing bonfire? It's point number two, that this repentance is communal. Uh, repentance is really hard by yourself. But having brothers and sisters repenting with you makes it that much easier. Uh, I'm going to push back on something Pastor Steve said two weeks ago. Uh, he quoted Men in Black saying, a person is smart, people are dumb. And yes, we'll see that when we get to crown number two, but that isn't the full picture. Uh, here we see this group of people that aren't dumb. This group of people right here is a powerful force for good. Can you imagine a community of brothers and sisters that are turning away from idols together and turning to the true and living God together? I know for me personally, in my uni days, uh, turning away from my idol of having a relationship and finding a girlfriend was really hard. It was costly but it's certainly a lot easier when Josh Mann and a couple of other guys were at my side saying, hey, you know what? Me too. That's a relationship in my life as well. Uh, let, let, let's commit to being single for a couple of years while we, we try to figure this out together. And as this group of guys, we would keep each other accountable, we would pick each other up when we're down, we'd talk about the struggles and that's a beautiful picture. I wonder if you're missing out of this. I wonder if you're a Sunday Christian or someone who's a Christian only by name because you're missing out on this communal repentance. Having every part of this journey together with other people, uh, continually being changed by the Word of God 
And your whole life is radically transformed. Being a follower of Jesus, not just on Sunday at church, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday as well. You're together with this group of people constantly thinking about how following Jesus transforms the way that you think about sex, money, gossiping, pirating, holidays, how you talk to your parents, how you go to school. It's this amazing joy to be part of this Christian life, not just by yourself, but with brothers and sisters around you and people who are repenting together. Brothers and sisters, I want to be upfront with you. I want to see this bonfire within us. I want to see you become a fire starter. I want to see you all living for Jesus together. How's that going to happen? It's going to take the Word of God being preached. That's the spark. It's going to take someone being the first to say, hey, I wonder, I I wonder if it's silly that we're spending all of our lives focusing on on bettering ourselves, on our children's success, on our comfort and entertainment and, and games and sport, on friendships, on continuing our dodgy ways of living. I wonder if that's the kindling to the fire. It's going to take people weighing up the cost and then saying at the end, you're right, we need to stop clinging to this. It's going to take that first person to throw their magic book, their idol, their way of living onto the fire That's the first piece of firewood. Then it's going to take the next person and the next person and the next person to throw their lot on the fire as well. To say, me too. I'm getting rid of this with you. All of which are going to keep adding up to this massive flame that was painful at the start and yet is warm and comforting and full of life when it's happening. Friends, I want you to light that fire with your group of people. You know they're the best. You know what has a grip on their life. Start the conversation with the person next to you after the sermon. Chat about it at lunch. Uh, Talk about it with your Bible study group. Will you be a crowd of people that repents together? Uh, now, the question is, what, what's actually stopping you from doing that? I'll give reason, one reason now, and we'll, I'll give three more reasons later on. I think one reason in particular for this, this specific church, and the reason why I think I, ha- I actually haven't seen much communal repentance at our church, is because of shame. Uh, a lot of people here have grown up in an Asian or traditional culture, Uh, And a key value in that culture is honor and shame. We'd rather deal with our sins quietly and secretly. You know, it's just between me and and God. I'll deal with it with myself. Because if I expose myself in front of other people, they're going to think worse of me. Uh, I want to ask a question, especially to people who have been Christians for a longer period of time. 
When was the last time you confessed your sins before others? Our friends, if we're going to be a community of people who repent together and confess our sin, we're going to need to go against that culture of our, our race and our parents and country. Because this church isn't a museum for saints, it's, it's a hospital for sinners. Okay, take a breather. Um, that's the end of crowd number one. The gospel message challenges the idols in people's lives and they respond in communal repentance. <coughs> Unfortunately, that's not how people are going to respond every time. Have a look at the crowd in crowd number two in Ephesus. They respond with communal rioting. And let me read briefly their response to the gospel, and then we're going to look at three responses to why they riot and what that means for us when we preach the gospel. Uh, Jump back with me to verse 23 um, in your Bibles. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Uh, The way is just another way of talking about Christianity. Uh, A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines to Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen there. He called the craftsmen and a bunch of others benefiting from the idol-making business together and said, My friends, you know that from this business we have our wealth. You see and hear that not only here in Ephesus, but practically the whole province of Asia, this fellow Paul has persuaded and turned away a great deal of people, saying that gods made with hands aren't gods at all. And there's a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis. That may be counted as nothing. And even the goddess herself who was worshipped in Asia, and the whole world will be counted as nothing. Verse 28, uh, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The whole thing gets out of control. There's shouting, there's rioting, there's chanting in the streets. It's absolute chaos and mayhem because, <coughs> because of the impact of the gospel. The whole city of tens of thousands of people was filled with the confusion, and they rushed into the theater. They're out for blood, and they, they, they dragged two of Paul's friends with them. You know, Paul wants to appear before the crowd, but his friends are holding him back, saying, Paul, don't go in there. If you go in there, you're going to die. Even some of the officials of the province that are friends of Paul are begging him not to go. Isn't that a picture of our, our world today? A world rioting against Christians and a world rioting against God. Let me give you three reasons from the text uh, to why they're rioting so you know what you're getting yourself into when you're engaging with this culture and this crowd. Uh, three reasons, and they'll, they'll overlap a bit. Your bulletin say four, but I think we're running low on time. Uh, reason number one... Um, our wealth. That's what Demetrius starts his rallying speech with. Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. I won't spend too long on this because we, we already covered it back uh, in the first crowd number one. But we know that the gospel would put pressure on the things that people treasure, find protection in, find enjoyment, significance, and their livelihoods in. And that, that, that's more than just money. Uh, Reason number two, our God. Hear what the crowd was shouting for hours on end. Great is Artemis. Great is Artemis. And I just want to say that the ancient people weren't 
too crazy to have all these gods. Every community and culture looks to something to save it and to give it meaning. They take something good that God has created and they try to make it an ultimate thing in their life. You know, beauty is a great thing, but if you mythologize it, you make it the level of God in a person or culture's life, then you have Aphrodite, not just beauty. Human reason is a great thing, science is great, but when you lift it up to be the God in your culture, that's Athena. Making money can be a great thing, but when it comes to, when it becomes an ultimate thing, that's Artemis. Uh, the ancient people make it easy to see the things that they viewed as God. Now, we have the same things, but we just don't give it the same name. But we do have them. They're hard to spot. Reason number three, uh, our tribe. Uh, you'll notice something interesting about what the crowd is chanting. It's not just great as Artemis, it's great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Their God is so wrapped up in their culture, their race, their country, and their little tribe and group of people. And, and we see that today. Uh, we, you, you can see this in religions. Uh, Auntie Elaine was telling me the other week that when she grew up in Malaysia, what was taught in her classes and in her textbooks is that, you know, the Chinese are Buddhists, the Indians are Hindus, the Westerners are Christian, and we Malaysians are Muslim. Religion is part of their cultural and racial identity. But more than just major religions, there's all sorts of these little tribes or groups that, cre- that cry out, great is our God of this group. If your group of people is a sports team and your joy and emotion is caught up in it, your cry is, how great is this rugby team? You know, that, that's, that's my team. If your people is a bunch of finance workers on the corporate grind, your mantra is, How great is the money and job satisfaction and success that this job brings here at this company? To be part of this group right here is to be a worshiper of this God. Uh, And people get swept up in the crowd and they take on the beliefs of those around them because that's just what everyone else does. But woven throughout this passage, Luke, the author of Acts, goes into great detail to paint this rioting crowd against God as foolish. I'm going to flash up a couple of verses on the screen. See it? It's coming. In verse 32, see if you can spot the foolishness. Verse 32, when the rioting starts, something they're shouting and rioting for one reason, something they're shouting and rioting for another reason. And most of them don't even know why they come together. Verse 33, some of the crowd puts forward Alexander, who was a Jew, and he wants to throw some more shade on the Christians uh, and defending the Jews. Uh, but in their confusion, when they, the crowd, when they realize that Alexander is a Jew, they instead start chanting for two hours with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians for two whole hours. And I love what happens next. Uh, the clown, town clerk stands up and tells them to get it together. 
Verse 35 and 36, he says, if Artemis is truly God, then she can defend herself. Verse 37, these guys haven't actually done anything wrong. But if you do think that they've done something wrong, verse 38, the courts are open. You can put in a case at the courts, you know, like, like civilized peoples. Because if you keep carrying on like this, in verse 40, we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause to what we can, no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And everyone left and dispersed. Our friends, there are many crowds out there that you're either going to be a part of or engaging with. Don't be one of the ones that riots foolishly against God. You'll end up looking foolish. Maybe that's, that's looking silly in this life right now. But maybe that's looking foolish when you stand before the judgment seat of God on that last day. And on that last day, you're not going to be able to say to Jesus, Jesus, I'm sorry. I only lived that way. I only did what I did because everyone else around me was doing it. Okay. What are we going to do about this story from Acts 19? And how does it interact with how we preach the gospel? First thing, we have to expect that people are going to respond differently to the gospel. On one hand, people, cultures, crowds are going to riot against you and against God. You're going to be hurt and mocked when you preach the gospel. Yet at the same time, you can expect big things. You should expect God to save people. You should expect Him to radically transform people's lives around Jesus. You should expect big groups of people to turn away from their idols and turn to serve the true and living God. Uh, Knowing what to expect, I want you to join in in my dream for this church for this year. It's It's a big dream, it's a vision for all of us, and it's my prayer for this place. I'm praying that God would save 15 people as they come to repent and believe in Jesus this year. And that God would use us as his people in that process. I want you to join in making this your dream, your prayer too. Pray for your family, friends, co-workers, mates on your sports team, your classmates, parents of school kids, your walking group, board game club, your favorite restaurant staff, your local barista. Pray that God would use you to preach the gospel to them and see a radical turnaround in their lives. Just briefly, let me push this one step further. If you're a a uni student or someone who's a young worker, I want to challenge you to ask you to... to, I want to ask you. Maybe you start making plans to go. Because here at SLE, part of our prayer isn't that you just... Join us in making Jesus known here in Brisbane. It's actually that you would take the gospel to the rest of Australia and to the rest of the world. Maybe you could take your gospel back to your home country. Maybe you could choose where you work, not based on your career, but actually with the gospel in mind. There's places in your head that you think, 
no way. Those people won't be open to the gospel because their culture is wrapped up in something else entirely. Brothers and sisters, God will work to save crowds of people and he will transform their lives around him. Have confidence in him. I was so encouraged today when Uncle Mike got up and he shared in the mission spot that this whole group of Hindu young people, 50 young people, they chose to choose to follow Jesus. They chose to repent and believe in God. That's so encouraging. Lastly, I want you all to notice what kind of gospel Paul is preaching. The reason why Crowd 2 riots is because Paul claims that gods made by human hands aren't gods at all. These idols don't deserve their worship. But that very same preaching is why crowd number one repents. They see their magic arts and that it's an idol and that it's foolish. And they turn their lives to live with Jesus as their God. Will you be a group of people that causes people to either repent or riot because their idols are challenged? How do you do that? Step one, uh, do you know the gods and idols in your culture, in your crowds, in your city, in your vocational field? Every group has one. You need to know what they are. And step number two, you've got to expose them for the gods that they aren't. And step number three, you're going to show people a better God. Our friends, I genuinely believe that we have the best God in the world, better than anyone else in the world. He gives life and meaning and purpose and significance. He gives life and life to the full. I mean... I think the alternatives are so lame to have your life wrapped up in money, sex, or power. We have a better God. And so we reason, persuade people. We go against the cries of the culture that scream, great is our God of this, or great is our God of that. We're going to sing now. Uh, The band is going to come up, uh, and we're going to sing together. How great is our God? We have this opportunity to sing as a crowd about our God, who is better.